and welcome to the BG Podcast. My name is AJ Bingham. We have with us Bingham Group Advisor, Jimmy Flanagan, former Austin Council member. Welcome back to the show, Jimmy. Hello, AJ. Glad to be with you. I think you're one of our first guests on the podcast overall. And, uh, you know, you've been on it several times. It's the first time in your um, post-council capacity, but we're, we're glad to have you on and, um, you know, just here to, to talk a little bit about a uh, really key issue, I think, for a lot of people is around the city budget. Well, city budget is a pretty important document in our city. Uh, you know, they say uh, budgets are a moral document, I think is the phrase. In Austin specifically, it's it's even more critical because the city of Austin ends up being the primary funder for a wide variety of services and initiatives in our community, which in other cities is uh, more divided between the county and the city or in other states, it might be more reliant on the state. But in Central Texas, the city of Austin ends up being the primary funder in, in almost everything. So the council pat rather passed their budget um, August 12th, earlier this month, $4.5 billion. Uh, one of the key discussion points that came up during the budget, the draft budget's release was around 3.5% uh, rev, property revenue ca tax cap. Can you give a refresher of what that is? This Because this was passed by the state legislature while you were on the dais. Yeah, and first I do want to clarify that the city of Austin is a complex bureaucracy. 4.5 billion includes parts of the city like the energy, like Austin Energy, Austin Water, the airport, which are not supported by property taxes. So when you get to the part of the budget supported by property taxes, normally called the general fund, we're in closer to 1 billion. Uh, and I'm not sure in this particular budget if it was like 1.1, 1.2, but, but it's kind of been in that space. 3.5 is, is, it used to be eight, right? It used to be you could increase your budget on existing taxpayers by 8%. It didn't count new taxpayers against you. So if you had a new development come in, that didn't count against you, but it's this, it was this 8% cap that pretty much every city in the state of Texas uh, never exceeded. Then the legislature decided, well, eight, eight is too much. Maybe it should be lower. I mean, who doesn't like the concept of lower taxes? Uh, but unfortunately, the, the reduction to 3.5 was not a well-calculated, university-studied uh, uh, threshold. It was kind of picked out of thin air. Mm -hmm. And you really get into trouble because there are parts of the city budget that grow, the costs grow over time, even if your city doesn't grow over time. The biggest one is the police department. Now there's a whole separate conversation about police budgets and we can get into that in a second. But regardless of growing or shrinking a police budget, your core cost of policing in pretty much every city grows between five and 6% per year. And that is the cost of your labor because you build in with your police union, you build in increased uh, salaries. Many of those salaries are locked in based on an officer's years of service. It's not, they're not flexible uh, performance rewarded salary raises like you might be accustomed to in the private sector. These are all baked in advance based on how long you've been there. And so the longer your police officers serve, the more expensive they get. And in Austin, at least, the police budget is roughly half, roughly half of the entire tax supported budget. So if you have half your budget growing five to 6% per year, no matter what you do, then to cap the entire budget at 3.5 gets you to a position where over time, 
you can't spend on anything else but policing. You can't spend on firefighters. You can't spend on EMS, parks, libraries. And in Austin, we have a pretty significant public health initiative. Uh, you can't spend on any of those things. In fact, you start cannibalizing mm -hmm. those departments in order to maintain what are these locked in cost drivers through personnel union contracts and the general cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. And so tying to that, Jimmy, when the when city manager Spencer Kronk released uh, the proposed budget or later in July, one of the, the key points he brought up in that speech was, I'm just going to quote him, based on the projected growth in our base cost alone over the next five fiscal years, the state's 3.5% revenue cap will result in the annual budget deficits for the city that start at, start at 5.5 million in FY23, this next budget cycle, and grow to 15.6 million by FY26, right? So again, to your point about cannibalizing, just, just for, in layman's terms, right, what does this mean to you? Like if you were on the dais now with these numbers on the horizon, knowing where the constraints are, is what, what environment is, what environment are we in for, for, um, for entities, organizations that rely on the city for, for funding in full or in part? You know, we, we've seen Austin is, this, is the fastest growing city in America. The most recent census data has proven that to be true. Bizarrely, the one exception is a gigantic retirement community in Florida. But when you look at metropolitan areas, Austin's the fastest growing area in the entire country over the last 10 years. And that's not unusual. In fact, since the founding of the city, it has doubled in population on the regular. There's no magic time period in which Austin wasn't changing. Austin is a city of change. But when you look at the deficits, what you're, what you're asking is, how do you, knowing that all, in every department, cost drivers go up. I mean, look, look at what's happening in other industries, like the cost of timber, mm -hmm. right? The cost of, of timber went up. So all the cost of development and building went up. Well, the city's building stuff too. It, it needs all manner of, of uh, buildings and services and things. You know, the cost of steel has been on a wild ride. Uh, certainly during the Trump administration, it was on a wild ride. That leads into the cost of buying new police cars or fire trucks. So when, when you look at the deficit and if, if it's, you know, hitting $100 million, you have to find where you cut, you, you have to cut because it's not enough to maintain the services you have because maintaining the services you have is increasing in cost because of these cost drivers. Mm -hmm. So how do you cut $100 million when, or, or even $15 million when some of your quality of life departments like library or animal services, they're not much bigger than that number in total. Five years in, you're basically eliminating the library system in order to not make cuts in police, fire, EMS, or parks. And parks is a tough one because so much of, of the parks budget is related to capital and land acquisition and, and other things that it's not so much of a variable. Mm -hmm. and, and the parts of the park service that are variable are things that everybody demands more of. In fact, in Austin, people pretty much demand more of everything. They want more ambulances, they want more fire service, they want more police officers, they want more you know, uh, uh, summer camps for their kids in the park system, they want more open hours at the swimming pools, they want more open hours in the library department, they want more services from the, it's, it's very hard to find an area of city government where if you ask someone specifically what to cut, that they will identify literally anything. Mm -hmm. 
So what does this mean? I mean, just in practical terms, right? We're looking at a very you know constrained budgetary environment going forward. This next cycle, this next budget cycle, and onward, at least unless something miraculous changes things, which I doubt that'll happen in the capital, the state house. Um, and for again, for existing entities out there that are relying on funding, it's just a tired. It's going to be a tired environment overall. Then. What and what the legislature's answer to that question was. Well, if you want to go above 3.5, you just have to go to the voters that to get to an election. But here's the challenge. We did this for the Project Connect system. So we're actually pretty intimately familiar with how this law is written and what it requires. You can't just necessarily go to the voters for a general tax rate increase. You have to say in the ballot item what the tax is for. And if it fails, you have to go back to 3.5. So if you go to the voters and say, well, you know, the voters uh, passed this item that says we need two officers per thousand, which looks like it's gonna be on the next uh, off cycle election. Well, then it's gonna have to be followed up with a tax rate election that in perpetuity will be assigned to the police department. And, it, and it's not gonna be insignificant because that, that persistent forever tax also doesn't grow over time. So now you're set up in a situation where repeatedly, annually, or even two every two, three, four years, you gotta go back to the voters just to maintain the stuff the voters already told you they wanted based on who they voted into office or based on what ballot propositions they voted for. You have to do a second, step to do that it, it it really breaks how government is supposed to function which mm. you know some would argue was the point yeah so in practical terms right let's get back to for, for entities out there that you know that are are, are, are tied to the city in terms of funding and fuller part um you know we worked with some certain clients last, or the last two cycles in the budget um on their advocacy around appropriations what this what this when you were on the dais what what just broad strokes, no naming names, but what worked well in terms of advocacy from groups who were seeking, you know, uh, appropriations from the city budget and what didn't work well from your experience? Well, it really varies. It, it varies depending on the topic area that you're wanting to focus on. Strokes, right? In terms of yeah, approaching an office, um, laying it out and the follow through. It, it's, it's, it's a difficult process for the council um, because unlike legislators or, or in the federal level, city council members are term limited. So you don't have anybody with more at, at most eight to nine years of experience doing it, eight to nine budgets that you've completed. Plus with the constant changes that are happening at the legislature, it also becomes more difficult to really know what your flexibility is from budget year to budget year. Every council member also has different sets of priorities and areas that they want to focus on. And it's important to know where a council member is willing to spend their limited time and resources digging into the details of a budget. You then also have to understand the complex financial situation of the city at the moment and what are the uh, community pressures that the council is under to, to intend to solve a problem. There are some areas where every single year you generally hear similar asks you know, that are at a high level. We want more ambulances, we want more parks, we want more X, Y, Z. And then at times you'll see very specific issues like 
The homelessness issue is a good example of 10 years ago, there wasn't the same community push for funding that there has been in recent times. Now it's obviously deeply controversial, even in, in, in the budget time. And then the last thing, you know, just at a very basic level, the, the, the pressures to getting the city budget through are the combination of council and staff. And the staff from the city manager all the way down to assistant department directors and, and even down to frontline staff, they're the subject matter experts. For council, they have to be, they have to understand everything. And so it's very challenging to understand anything deeply. And so that work requires very succinct and deft understanding of where council members are so that you can deliver your request and your, your desires for city spending in a very tight, straightforward, and simple package. That's one of the things just in working with our clients again these last few cycles and even previously, I think with any, with any issue before council, is recognizing, acknowledging one, these offices, uh, the folks, the elected officials have at any given point, any given time, you know, a hundred, you know, throw a number out there, but a hundred or so, a plethora of items flowing through their head, right? Some things are their personal priorities, some things are just, are, are different priorities, but there's a lot of things flying around. And I think from delivery, one, I think it's knowing the importance again of their staff and which staff members are actually, or own that, you know, particular topic. There's a, a box on the city council site where you can email every council member at once, right? And I know people use that a lot, but it's recognizing you can reach out to these offices. And this is a you know, free pro tip. Some offices will have their, their staff who are assigned items um, on their page, some don't. Um, but calling an office and just asking who's the staffer for that item um, will save you a lot of steps to get to the person who's actually going to be, who's going to own um, and, and potentially steward, you know, your ask to the, the, the respective council members uh, desk. I think folks, we understand that a lot, right? In the public, it's just, obviously, I see you, you know, you're my council member, I'll let you know my, my issues, right? Recognizing they're, you know, they're, they're everyone, everyone's issue is their issue hearing all these things and there, there are folks your staff are the ones who provide you those initial filters to help break down and assess you know what you can carry what you can't and, and i think there's a there's there, there's just going to have to be an increased focus on the cost of doing business it's something that i focused on as a council member i was pretty fiscally responsible we'll say <laughs> uh in in my approach to the job and i and i tried to to be pretty hard on any new spending uh, as much as I could. Um, but there, there wasn't as much desire to spend as much time picking apart where the money was going before. More There was more focus on what the next dollar could go to, which makes sense. It's a much more fun conversation. But those next dollars are going to get smaller and smaller every year. In fact, they go negative. So so folks who are looking to, to help and partner with the city to improve the life, the quality of life, and to improve uh, uh, the experience of living in Austin, you know, it's going to be more and more important to think about how how your service and your product can help the city reduce its cost of doing business. And I think that's something that hasn't been as much of a focus in the past. Yeah, I mean, what are ways? I mean, again, we're, the city is going to be under tighter fiscal constraints. Um, you know, barring them, barring council taking you know about taking a initiative to the voters. Um, Beyond that, then, I mean, so we're we're going to a tighter fiscal. We are in a potentially tighter fiscal environment, and 
I mean, what options do you see that the city has or for, again, for groups that are out there looking for funding, what can they do, right, in the future? Like if, you, if the numbers that that, that city manager Crump puts up or hold and by FY26, so what, four years from now-ish, um, or three cycles from now, right, we're looking at a $15.6 million deficit. And there's no, you know, it's just, it's just you know, what was there to do for, for groups that are looking for funding? The city's economic development department during South by uh, has done kind of pitch, uh, uh, I think there's civic, civic uh, you know, pitch decks. And um, I once helped judge uh, with council member Kitchen and I uh, judged a, uh, at Capital Factory, a kind of civic startup contest. Um, and, and a lot of what those ideas were that we saw were were technology solutions to help a city provide either as good or better service at a lower cost. And, and those are really important and they're going to become even more important moving forward. Um, you know, I, I think every council member, I certainly did and do have a whole library of brainstorming ideas in the back of our minds at any moment, but uh, council members are often disincentivized to brainstorm in public. So you never know when your really cool idea that you've worked out, that you've got partners for, that want to want to be a partner with the city, you you kind of never know when you might find a friend in a council office. And that's where, again, knowing where council members are and where their focus areas live and the amount of time they're willing to spend on the topic you want to work on, that becomes really important. Uh, because many times, if you want to do something new or different, you really do need a friend in City Hall. What do you, What's your take on... Um, the potential for increased reliance on public-private partnerships or P3s, again, just given the tighter constraints, right? So again, we can't if if we can't raise if we can't raise taxes and funding and the needs of the city are increasing. Um, and to your point about the Civitech and kind of outside groups who have potential solutions for the city, you know, where you know what other options are there, you know, for for the city yeah. by funding or yeah, public to serve to serve the community. With a again, with a with a in a very limited fiscal environment. Yeah, Pu public-private partnerships is a challenging subject to talk about because I have come to appreciate that different people define that term differently. Some people in the community hear that and they think privatize, take a thing that's currently a city service and give it to a private company. That's almost never what's being discussed. Certainly there are people out there who believe that that's something that should be done, but I'm a big fan of public-private partnerships where it's a win-win, where we're not taking away from the, the core public-focused work that government is supposed to do, but you bring in a private partner where both sides get, uh, get success out of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's about leveraging other government and quasi-government partners in a stronger, more leveraged partnership where you can get economies of scale. This is, this is a, a persistent question, I think, for us as a region, when you think beyond just the city of Austin's borders, where you get into, I would say, complex political gamesmanship. But really, we as a region are so powerful if we could get past that and start thinking about how to solve these problems as a community together across municipal jurisdictions, across county lines, because ultimately our, our community, our constituents, the citizens of Austin, Texas, 
don't just live in the municipal borders of Austin, Texas. People are moving out. There's gentrification and affordability concerns. Uh, that's a whole other podcast we could talk about. Um, but we've, we've got to get stronger at collaborating across the city and county lines to really get the economies of scale that'll, that'll bring down um, the cost of doing business in a way that's sustainable. And I, I agree that is a separate, full separate show. Um, we'll leave it there for today, Jimmy. Thank you for your time. Jimmy Flanagan is an advisor for Bingham Group. This is the BG Podcast. My name is AJ Bingham. Mm-hmm.